So get yourself a little lovin' in between. <laughs> well, that's good advice from a writer whose 100th birthday we're celebrating tonight as part of the Master's Tribute. And others who have similarly been honored in this series are James Baldwin, Flannery O'Connor, and John Steinbeck. And here we are in the very building, Town Hall, where Langston Hughes in 1944 spoke on the topic, let's address the race question. A warm welcome to all of you. I'm Joel Canaro, president of Penn American Center, and I greet you on behalf of my colleagues, Michael, Robert, Michael Roberts, uh, Sean Rocha, and Andrea Javeran. I'd also like to thank Penn board member James Rubin, who worked with Carolina Garcia and Cecilia Falls of our Readers and Writers and Book Groups programs to enable 100 students to attend tonight's tribute. These programs work year-round around the country with dedicated writers who bring the power of literature firsthand in the flesh, as it were, to classrooms, and this is something that I think Langston Hughes would have applauded. All of us are grateful to the artists who will be on the stage, and I offer special thanks to my friend, uh, Langston Hughes biographer, Arnold Rampersad, who curated the program. Let's hear it for Arnold. <clears throat> Max Roach, who for decades has collaborated brilliantly with poets, is, for honorable reasons, with us tonight, not on stage, but in the audience, and I welcome him. I want to acknowledge Charles Flowers and Carrie Goldstein from our fellow sponsor, the Academy of American Poets. As you know, the Academy uh, launched, oh, go ahead and applaud, they're good fellows. Uh, they're worthy. The uh, Academy launched the National Poetry Month six years ago, and it now has a special Langston Hughes exhibit on its website at www.poets.org. I like the way that sounds. It scans www.poets.org. Can you all do it with me? <laughs> www.poets.org. Wonderful. Well, you'll never forget it now. Much praise is due as well to Howard Dotson of the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture. To Max Rodriguez at QBR, the Black Book Review. And to the New York Times. And clearly, anything involving Hughes is news fit to print. And a huge bouquet of thanks to our funders, where would we be without them? The uh, Kaplan Foundation and FJC, a foundation of donor-advised funds. Now I have personal, yeah. Well, we're enormously grateful to all of these folks. I have personal reasons, quite apart from my pen connection, for being absolutely delighted to be here tonight. As a very young man, Langston Hughes had a Guggenheim Fellowship. And as president of the Guggenheim Foundation, I take a huge amount of institutional pride in that kind of connection. 
Uh, 10 years ago, I brought out an anthology of poetry called Six American Poets, and it is, by the way, uh, available uh, in the lobby with proceeds going to Penn with a special reduced rate for students. The um, mail I got when the collection came out included a lot of letters from people who said they had encountered Whitman and Dickinson and Frost in school, but that Langston Hughes was an absolute revelation. And many of them commented in particular on a cluster of poems about a fiercely independent woman who will take no guff from anybody who calls herself Madam. And I'm having so much fun up here that before I relinquish this microphone, I want to share uh, one of these inimitable outbursts. This is called Madam and the Rent Man. The Rent Man knocked. He said, howdy-do. I said, what can I do for you? He said, you know, your rent is due. I said, listen, before I'd pay, I'd go to Hades and rot away. The sink is broke, the water don't run, and you ain't done a thing you promised to have done. Back windows cracked, kitchen floor squeaks, there's rats in the cellar and the attic leaks. He said, madam, it's not up to me, I'm just the agent, don't you see? I said, naturally you pass the buck, and if it's money you want, you're out of luck. He said, madam, I ain't pleased. I said, neither am I, so we agrees. <laughs> well, welcome to Langston Hughes' birthday party. Settle back and have a wonderful time. Thank you. This is The Negro Speaks of Rivers, one of my earliest poems written in 1920, just after I came out of high school. The way this poem came to be written was that I was going to Mexico to visit my father, who lived in Mexico City, and on the train going across the Mississippi River, just outside St. Louis, I looked out the window and I saw this great muddy river flowing down toward the heart of the south, and I began to think about what this river meant to the Negro people, how, in a sense, our history was linked to this river, how in slavery time, my grandmother told me that to be sold down the Mississippi was one of the worst things that could happen to a Negro slave. And then uh, I remembered that I'd read about Abraham Lincoln going down the Mississippi as a young man, and he went on a raft to New Orleans and he saw human beings bought and sold in the slave market there and he was so horrified by this that he never forgot it and many years later of course we know that it was Lincoln who signed the Emancipation Proclamation and so uh, as the train went on into the gathering dusk because it had been about sunset when we crossed the river I took my father's letter out of my pocket and began to write down on the back of his letter this poem, The Negro Speaks of Rivers. I've known rivers. I've known rivers ancient as the world and older than the flow of human blood in human veins. My soul has grown deep like the rivers. I bathed in the Euphrates when dawns were young. I built my hut near the Congo and it lulled me to sleep. 
I looked upon the Nile and raised the pyramids above it. I heard the singing of the Mississippi when Abe Lincoln went down to New Orleans, and I've seen its muddy bosom turn all golden in the sunset. I've known rivers, ancient, dusky rivers. My soul has grown deep like the rivers. Good evening. Uh, I'm Arnold Rampersad. That poem Langston was just reading, I don't know if he mentioned it, but he wrote it when he was 19 years of age, actually 18 years of age, and published it when he was 19 years of age, in 1921, in Du Bois's magazine, Crisis. And here we are, 80, what is it, one years later, celebrating the centenary of his birth. And we are celebrating. Uh, the post office, as you know, has issued a Langston Hughes stamp. Uh, Conferences have been held in Joplin, Missouri, where, for example, where he was born, in Lawrence, Kansas, where he spent his childhood, in Cleveland, where he went to high school, and in New Haven at Yale, where his wonderful papers are to be found. And according to the folks at the Academy of American Poets, more people visit Langston Hughes's page uh, on the website there than that of any other of its more than 400 uh, poets. Now, why is Hughes so popular? And more importantly, I think, why do so many people love Langston Hughes? We respect many writers, but I think we love only a few, and he is one of those some of us really love. In part, I think, because often we first encounter his poetry early in school and never outgrow him. In part, I also think because of the way he speaks to our heartbreaking national problem of race. His poetry reflects not only the wrong and the pain of racism, uh, but also the humanity of those who suffer most at its hands. We respect Langston's conscience, his imagination, his lyric gift, his passion, not only for black America, but for America itself. We respect the dedication that kept Hughes writing through years of poverty and political persecution. We respect the sheer variety of his work, the many books of poems, the dozen or more books for children, the dozen or more plays written and produced, two volumes of autobiography, a history of the NAACP, four books of translations from French and Spanish, several anthologies of African-American and African writing, various opera libretti, countless song lyrics, 20 years of weekly newspaper columns, and five volumes of simple stories from those columns. Now, Langston Hughes loved books. In his childhood, which was lonely, as he tells it, growing up with his aged grandmother, books comforted him. Then it was, he confessed, that books began to happen to me, and I began to believe in nothing but books and the wonderful world in books, where if people suffered, they suffered in beautiful language, not in monosyllables as we did in Kansas. 
He also grew up with a sense of obligation. In 1859, his grandmother's first husband had died at Harpers Ferry as a member of John Brown's band of rebels against slavery. Mary Langston made sure that her grandson grew up with a sense of responsibility to the cause of social justice, especially for his fellow blacks facing Jim Crow everywhere. Uh, that dedication would drive Langston Hughes for the rest of his days. His life found him in many places before he settled down in his beloved Harlem, places such as Lincoln, Illinois, where he wrote his first poem, Cleveland, Ohio, where he attended high school, Mexico, where his father lived, Columbia University, from which he withdrew after one unhappy year. By the age of 22, he had been to Africa. By 23, Europe. By 32, he had spent a year in the Soviet Union and traveled literally around the globe. In high school, most of his classmates were the kids of uh, Eastern European immigrants. From them especially, I think, he learned about radical socialism and about the dream of interracial and international unity. In English class, he met writers whose work would deliver him from the conventional, especially Walt Whitman and Whitman's modern disciple Carl Sandburg, my guiding star, Hughes called him. Their poems grounded in Hughes a sense of the dynamic relationship between art and democracy in America. But race was central to his consciousness, and thus black writers were also crucial. Above all, perhaps, Paul Lawrence Dunbar, W.B. Du Bois, and Claude McKay. From the start, in poems such as The South, The Lazy Laughing South with Blood on Its Mouth, or The White Ones, I Do Not Hate You For Your Faces Are Beautiful Too, Hughes courageously spoke poetical truth to secular power. Many of his lyric poems have nothing to do with the matter of justice, but he never ceased to challenge Jim Crow or to champion the poor. Above all, he saw the beauty of human blackness long before almost any other artist had done so. In 1926, writing in The Nation, Hughes deplored the urge in many blacks, quote, toward whiteness, the desire to pour racial individuality into the mold of American standardization, and to be as little Negro and as much American as possible. His poetry embraced blacks. I am a Negro, black as the night is black, black like the depths of my Africa. In a world that worshiped whiteness, Hughes dared to say, the night is beautiful, so the faces of my people. The stars are beautiful, so the eyes of my people. Beautiful also is the sun, beautiful also are the souls of my people. In Washington, D.C., where he lived in 1925, he learned much from the poorest blacks there who struggled to live, but who also sang and danced and laughed out loud. I try to write poems, Hughes says, like the songs they sang on 7th Street, gay songs, because you had to be gay or die Sad songs, because you couldn't help being sad sometimes, but gay or sad, you kept on living and you kept on going. For him, the metronome of black racial grace was its music. Like the waves of the sea coming one after another, always one after another. Like the earth moving around the sun, night, day, night, day, night, day, forever. So is the undertow of black music, with its rhythm that never betrays you, 
its strength like the beat of the human heart, its humor, and its rooted power. Now, many of Hughes' blues poems enraged critics in the black press, but he had unbreakable confidence in himself and in the masses of his people. It took a personal crisis combined with the onset of the Great Depression to make Hughes shift his focus. In the 1930s, he turned to radical socialism. Instead of blues and jazz, he penned some of the most radical verse ever written in America, pieces such as Good Morning Revolution and Goodbye Christ, and Put One More S in the USA to Make It Soviet, Letter to the Academy, <laughs> and Revolution, Great Mob That Knows No Fear, Come Here. With the start of World War II, however, Langston returned to more familiar ground. He returned to uh, jazz and blues. His political energy flowed mainly into the struggling civil rights movement, and his artistic energy into his amazing range of literary forms. By the 1950s, he was taking on so many poorly paid writing jobs that he laughed at himself as, quote, a literary sharecropper. But diligently, lovingly, Hughes continued to till that black soil he had first broken in 1921. The black masses loved Hughes, but the critics, black as well as white, often did not. His work was and is often seen as too simple or stale and inconsequential. For example, in 1959, the New York Times book review jeered at Hughes's selected poems when it came out that year. Quote, Every time I read Langston Hughes, according to its reviewer, I'm amazed all over again by his genuine gifts and depressed that he has done so little with them. The reviewer was James Baldwin. <laughs> Baldwin lived long enough to change his mind. <laughs> Baldwin lived long enough to change his mind, and many other people have had to change their minds about the art of Langston Hughes. The truth is that he possessed the power to see more clearly than most other people what was always reality in the African-American world and what was only prejudice and illusion. He also possessed the skills to convert this vision into its appropriate art. To my mind, Langston Hughes created a body of writing that, like jazz and the blues, speaks in a priceless way both of and to America. To me, he belongs with a small but heroic circle of artists and leaders of color, including Diego Rivera, Mahatma Gandhi, Nelson Mandela, Martin Luther King Jr. In the 20th century, in stubborn but principled and imaginative ways, these leaders resisted political and cultural colonialism. In so doing, they led all of us to a transformed sense of ourselves and a transformed sense of the modern world we live in. Thank you. My name is Willie Perdomo, and I'm going to do this riff. I'm 
gonna do this riff for that cardigan sweater wearing blues poet Raymond R. Patterson, Professor Emeritus at City College of New York. May you rest in peace. Freshman year, I found Langston behind his typewriter the year after Ed Randolph, my first mentor, gave me poetry so I could stop fighting in a Quaker school. <laughs> Joyce and Pretty Tomas were required reading in Mr. Burns' lit class, but I took the liberty of putting Langston on my financial aid voucher anyway. That night, taking breaks from algebra, I heard the dogs in the street bark, couples argued, and kids were being called in for dinner. And I went through those selected poems like I was stranded in a desert and a chilled bottle of Poland spring water fell from the sky. I had a pop-up book in my hand, complete with the language to get around Lenox Avenue, to talk with the madam, to play bop rim shots, to get inside the revolution, and to fall in love. Here I was walking down the block with brand new ears, big as they were. Langston gave me that first song that I recited to my Sugar Hill Thrill, that sweetie I made the Harlem love poem with, the poem I tried to memorize so that I could recite to her when we had all of Harlem in our hands from her project rooftop. I could take the Harlem night and wrap around you, take the neon lights and make a crown, take the Lenox Avenue buses, taxis, subways, and for your love song, tumble their rumble down. Take Harlem's heartbeat, make a drum beat, put it on a record, let it whirl. And while we listen to it play, dance with you till day. Dance with you, my sweet brown Harlem girl. Some years later, after being turned out in Barnes & Noble, I started laying it down like Langston and Tazaki, Mikey Pinero, Amiri Baraka, William Carlos, Nikki, and Sonia. And I got caught between the page and the stage. Everybody said it sounded different when you heard it than when you read it. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> no doubt, we can't always use the same beat. I just want to sing, man. I could take you to the racial mountain if you want. If you like it, it don't matter. If you don't like it, that don't matter either. We stay true. Ask Rilke, if you need to write it, then write it. That was all. I've been a street poet, a spoken word artist, a performance poet, a hip hop poet. Shit, they even call me word perfect on occasion. <laughs> My first set was blessed by Langston's prime. You know that line at the end where the brother says he found himself coming to his prime in the section of the niggas where a nickel costs a dime. Yeah, that was it. And that original man-child from the promised land, Claude Brown, said that I had arrived, born again. But this time, I was coming with some coquito and some lechon, some oye como va down Lexington Avenue. Some straight boogie-woogie rumba. Getting on a six train to Lower East Side, watching Puerto Rican flags fall into the East River one by one. And kicking it at the New Rican Poets Cafe with Langston's warning like, Daddy, don't let your dog curb you. Except I caught junkies in the middle of their catch-22s like, in the case of an emergency, call a cop, but make sure you cop your cure before you call. Quick! <laughs> Langston put it down for all of us. And like Mikey, he was good when he was doing bad. When he had to testify, but really, he wanted to listen, us to listen to that tom-tom of beating feet, marching for what was humanly ours, that right to live. Singers of self, those who know that things ain't right, that the avenues need a voice, that sugarcane workers found dominoes on the curb, that it was time for Susanna Jones to wear red and get simple when we needed to. 
that the weary blues are colorblind. That when we stop laughing, stop loving, and stop living, we stand and tell the world we still here in the face of what we remember. Here's that letter that Langston wrote to, as all the kids around my mother's neighborhood say, the haters. Letter to the academy. <clears throat> the gentlemen who have got to be classics and are now old with beards or dead in their graves will kindly come forward and speak upon the subject of the revolution. I mean, the gentlemen who wrote lovely books about the defeat of the flesh and the triumph of the spirit that sold in the hundreds of thousands and are studied in the high schools and read by the best people will kindly come forward and speak about the revolution. Where the flesh triumphs as well as the spirit and the hungry belly eats and there are no best people and the poor are mighty and no longer poor and the young by the hundreds of thousands are free from hunger to grow and study and love and propagate bodies and souls unchained without my Lord saying a commoner shall never marry my daughter or the rabbi crying cursed be the mating of Jews and Gentiles or Kipling writing never the twain shall meet for the twain have met. But please. All you gentlemen with beards who are so wise and old and who write better than we do and whose souls have triumphed in despite of hungers and wars and the evils about you and whose books have soared in calmness and beauty aloof from the struggle to the library shelves and the desks of students who are now classics, come forward and speak upon the subject of the revolution. We want to know what in the hell you'd say. Thank you, Tom Hall. What an honor it is to be here to celebrate this great man, Langston Hughes. Before I read the poem that I chose to read, I wanted to say that I traveled to Cuba for an international writers' conference in the late 1970s. After I had read a paper to an audience, some of the organizers asked me if I wanted anything. I said, yes, I'd like to meet Nicholas Gillian because I had remembered the picture of Langston and Gillian and Hemingway there in Spain. They stared at me, said he wasn't feeling well, told me they tried to arrange it. Two hours later, they gathered me up to visit him, and as I entered his office, he was standing in the middle of the room, feet planted on Cuban earth, legs no longer strong, but arms strong like Elizabeth Kaplan's black woman's arms. And he says, Sonia, 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 Sonia Sanchez, como Langston, como Langston Hughes. And I smiled, a smile of recognition, folded myself into his arms, and he hugged me so hard that I felt that I couldn't breathe. And I said, hold it, I didn't come to Cuba to die. <laughs> and then I realized that if I just stopped struggling and leaned into his breath, I would be okay, we would be okay. And I leaned into his breath and we began to breathe as one. That is what Langston Hughes's poetry, plays, essays, short stories told us, the necessity to learn how to lean into each other's breath and breathe as one. So listen, 
Listen, gentle persons, I come to you this night with two voices. I come to praise this man, this brother, this genius, this holy man, this weaver of words threading silver and gold into our veins. I come with the voice of the praiser. I come with the voice of the poet. I come to you to praise this man who gave us his eyes and we shone, became perennial, who piloted us into the slow bloodstream of America and we tagged behind, walking on tiptoes, heard his words like jazz, like blues, like gospels, agitating, keeping us on the edge of ourselves, breathing in our own noise, and we became small miracles. Something underneath your hands, Langston man, something mighty, something jazzy, something radical in your hands, accenting our blue flesh, observing us in a familiar city called Harlem, New York, called the world. When we return, where we return as birth, blood, water, death, where we became traveling men and women, turning corners, moving like black trains across the country, landless men and women, immortal in our moving, dying with nothing, dying from everything. And you gave us early morning names, Madam, Alberta K. Johnson, Jess B. Simple, Susanna Jones, Gosborough Boys, Gillian, Lorca, Lumumba, Nkrumah, Nasa Fidel, and how to resist in the quarter of the Negroes. You gave us the still Harlem air, the darker brother star, the Christ in Alabama sky, the knowledge that we were two nations under one America, so much life coursing through your pages, man, so many vacancies filled by your eyes. You made us figure out the humor in tragedy, the tragedy in humor, taught us what we were really missing in our lives while we lived 20 years in 10. You know already that we make our history, but only so much of it as we are allowed to make. So listen, gentlemen, gentlewomen, Pull your hearts out of your armpits. Get your tuxedos out of mothballs. Put your long red dress girl on and snap your breasts into place as we go sailing on Langston Hughes' tongue, living, speaking without a crutch. This is his centennial, his birthday. Tonight is a political act. Woke up this morning with my eyes on Langston. I say, woke up this morning with my eyes on Langston. Woke up this morning with my eyes on Langston. Gonna live, gonna love, gonna resist just like he did. Gonna live, gonna love, gonna resist just like he did. Gonna live, 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 and love, 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 and resist just like he did. Langston. And so, I wanna read a piece. Let America be America again. Let America be America again. Let it be the dream it used to be. Let it be the pioneer on the plains seeking a home where he himself is free. America never was America to me. Let America be the dream, the dreamer's dream. Let it be that great strong land of love where never kings connive nor tyrants scheme that any man be crushed by one above. It never was America to me. Oh, 
Oh, let my land be a land where liberty is crowned with no false patriotic wreath, but opportunity is real and life is free. Equality is in the air we breathe. There's never been equality for me, nor freedom in this homeland of the free. Say, 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 who are you that mumbles in the dark? Say, 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 who are you that draws your veil across the stars? I am the poor white, fool and pushed apart. I am the Negro bearing slavery scars. I am the red man driven from the land. I am the immigrant clutching the hope I seek and finding only the same old stupid plan of dog eat dog, of mighty crush the weak. I am the young man full of strength and hope, tangled in that ancient endless chain of profit, power, gain, or grab the land, or grab the goal, or grab the ways to satisfy need of work the men, or take the play of owning everything for one's own greed. I am the farmer, bondsman to the soil. I am the worker, sold to the machine. I am the Negro, servant to you all. I am the people, humble, hungry, mean, hungry yet today, despite the dream, beaten yet today. Oh, pioneers, I am the man who never got ahead, the poorest worker bartered through the years, yet I'm the one who dreamt our basic dream in that old world while still a surf of kings, who dreamt a dream so strong, so brave, so true, that even yet it's mighty daring scenes in every brick and stone, in every furrow turn that's made America the land it has become, oh, oh, I'm the man who sailed those early seas in search of what I meant to be my home. For I'm the one who left dark Ireland's shore and Poland's plain and England's grassy lee and torn from black Africa's strand. I came to build a homeland for the free, the free, the free, the free. The free, free, who said the free, who said the free, not me, not me, surely not me. The millions on relief today, the millions shot down when we strike, the millions who have nothing for our pay, for all the dreams we've dreamed, and all the songs we've sung, and all the hopes we've held, and all the flags we've hung. The millions who have nothing for our pay, except the dream that's almost dead today. Oh, 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 let America be America again. The land that never has been yet and yet must be. The land where every man is free. The land that's mine, the poor man's, Indians, Negro, me who made America, whose sweat and blood, whose faith and pain, whose hand at the foundry, whose plow in the rain must bring back our mighty dream again. Sure, sure, call me any ugly name you choose. The still of freedom does not stain from those who live like leeches on the people's lives. You must take back our land again. We must take back our land again. America! Oh yes, I said, plain America never, 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 never was America to me, and yet I swear this oath, America will be out of the rack, out of the rack, and ruin of our gangster debt the rape and rot of graft and stealth and lies. We, 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 the people, we, the people, must redeem the land, the mines, mm, the plants, mm, the rivers, the mountains, and the endless plain. All, all the stretch of these great green states and make, and make, and make America, and make America, America again, 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 America, yeah.
theme for English B. The instructor said, go home and write a page tonight and let that page come out of you. Then it will be true. I wonder if it's that simple. I am 22 colored, born in Winston-Salem. I went to school there, then Durham, then here to this college on the hill above Harlem. I am the only colored student in my class. The steps from the hill lead down into Harlem through a park. Then I cross St. Nicholas, 8th Avenue, 7th, and I come to the Y, the Harlem branch Y, where I take the elevator up to my room, sit down, and write this page. It is not easy to know what is true for you or me at 22 my age. But I guess I'm what I feel and see and hear. Harlem, I hear you, hear you, hear me. We too, you, me, talk on this page. I hear New York too, me. Well, I like to eat, sleep, drink, and be in love. I like to work, read, learn, and understand life. I like a pipe for a Christmas present, or records, Bessie, Bop, or Bach. I guess being colored doesn't make me not like the same things other folks like who are other races. So will my page be colored that I write? Being me, it will not be white, but it will be a part of you, instructor. You are white, yet a part of me, as I am a part of you. That's American. Sometimes perhaps you don't want to be a part of me, nor do I often want to be a part of you. But we are, that's true. As I learn from you, I guess you learn from me. Although you're older and white and somewhat more free, this is my page for English B. Mm. Preference. I like a woman six or eight and ten years older than myself. <laughs> I don't fool with these young girls. <laughs> young girls say, oh, Daddy, I want so and so. I need this, that, and the other. <laughs> but an old woman will say, Honey, what does you need? <laughs> I just drawed my money tonight and it's all yours. <laughs> That's why I like an older woman who can appreciate me. When she conversations you, it ain't forever. Gimme, gimme.
Shame on you. If you're great enough and clever enough, the government might honor you, but the people will forget, except on holidays. A movie house in Harlem named after Lincoln, nothing at all named after John Brown. Black people don't remember anything better than white. If you're not alive and kicking, shame on you. Necessity. Work! I don't have to go to work. I don't have to do nothing but eat, drink, stay black, and die. <laughs> this little old furnished room so small, I can't whip a cat without getting fur in my mouth. <laughs> my old lady's, my landlady's so old, her features is all run together. And God knows she can sure overcharge. Which is why I reckon I does have to work after all. If I just had a piano, if I just had an organ, if I just had a drum, how I could praise my Lord, but I don't need no piano, neither organ nor drum, for to I
In a deep song voice with a melancholy tone, I heard that Negro sing, that old piano moan. Ain't got nobody in all this world. Ain't got nobody but myself. I was going to quit my frowning and put my troubles on the shelf. Thump, 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 went his foot on the floor. He played a few chords, then he sang some more. I got the weary blues and I can't be satisfied. Got the weary blues and can't be satisfied. I ain't happy no more and I wish that I had died. Far into the night he crooned that tune. The stars went out and so did the moon. The singer stopped playing and went to bed while the weary blues echoed through his head. He slept like a rock or a man that's dead. Good evening, I'm Paul Marshall, and in the scant 10 minutes or so, <laughs> and in the scant 10 minutes or so that I've been given, I'd just like to share with you a few personal reminiscences about a friendship that was and continues to be one of the defining experiences of my life. Back in the spring of 1965, a fledgling young writer, her career only just getting underway, received an official letter from the USIA, the cultural wing of the State Department. The letter informed the fledgling, yours truly, that the eminent poet and playwright Langston Hughes would be touring Europe shortly at the request of the State Department, giving a series of readings and talks on African-American writing. This was something Mr. Hughes had done for the State Department, they said, on a number of occasions in other parts of the world. Only this time, in a departure from the usual format, Mr. Hughes would be traveling with two other writers, two writers of his choosing, of course, and that he had named me as one of the writers he wished to take with him. <laughs> One of the writers he wished to take with him to Europe. Would you perhaps be interested in accompanying Mr. Hughes on the tour? <laughs> Talk about a dumb question. <laughs> I immediately got into high gear, made arrangements for the care of my six-year-old son, put on hold the novel I was working on, packed a few essentials, including the one novel that I published at the time, of a story about a young woman coming of age in Brownstone, Brooklyn. <laughs> and on the appointed day, still in a state of disbelief, I took a taxi out to Kennedy Airport along with William Melvin Kelly, Bill Kelly. He was the other writer Mr. Hughes had chosen another fledgling like myself with a first novel. Our benefactor stood waiting for us inside the terminal. Mr. Hughes was in his 60s by then, 
the dashing young poet of the Harlem Renaissance with the movie star good looks, had been replaced by a somewhat portly, aging, yet nonetheless urbane man of letters. Every wave of his natural wavy hair in place. <laughs> a cigarette, a permanent fixture between his lips, and a boyish smile the years had in no way diminished. Moreover, by then, Mr. Hughes possessed the unmistakable aura and authority of his long reign as Black America's Poet Laureate. I can't speak for Bill Kelly, but I wanted to bow down before his royal presence that day in the airport. The three-week cultural tour started out in Paris and quickly proved to be an endless academic round of lectures, talks, discussions, readings, seminars, colloquiums, usually followed sometimes by very heated question and answer sessions on race relations in America. Throughout it all, Mr. Hughes remained cool, unflappable. He had been there. He had argued all that many a time before, except on one occasion at Africa House in London. Some of the young Turks, the young hotheads in the audience, accused him of failing people who had no sense of history. Anyway, accused him of failing to take a more militant stand in the freedom struggle. Visibly angry for the first time, his voice tight, his face tight, Mr. Hughes informed them that he'd been walking the picket lines, mounting the barricades, demonstrating and protesting, indeed had been denounced by McCarthy as one of the most dangerous radicals in America long before anyone there in Africa House had been born. <laughs> then there was a practical problem about the tour that also angered him. It had to do with our meals. Mr. Hughes was a man who loved to eat and drink well and to do so on a regular basis. <laughs> that is three square meals a day, each meal eaten leisurely. Given our hectic schedule, we sometimes didn't get to have our first decent meal until late at night. Mr. Hughes was not pleased. <laughs> Paulie, he insisted on calling me Paulie, not Paul, and who was I to correct him? <laughs> Paulie, these State Department folks are messing with us. Here they got us singing for our supper morning till night. Only half the time there's no supper. <laughs> Matters came to a head on a trip to Oxford University where Mr. Hughes was to read before the prestigious Oxford Poetry Society. After another nonstop day of talks in London with little or no food, we took the train to Oxford that evening, hungry. We immediately headed for the dining car, only to find a long waiting line, or what the British call a queue. Worse, by the time we were finally seated and had settled into our steak dinner and wine, the train was pulling into Oxford. That did it. A furious Mr. Hughes snatched up the unfinished wine. He ordered me to take charge of the food. And we alighted into the welcoming committee from Oxford, 
with him carrying his books in one hand and in the other the wine bottle and me holding two doggy bags of unfinished steak. <laughs> By the time we returned to Paris, though, Mr. Hughes had seen to it we had regular meals as well as more time to ourselves in the evening. Time that he used, bless him, to introduce me, a little provincial from Brooklyn, to the fabled nightlife of the City of Light. The restaurants, bars, bistros, cafes, and jazz clubs. Mr. Hughes had his favorites. Paris, after all, was his second home after Harlem. He also knew, obviously, some after-hours spots that were perhaps a little too risque for the fledgling. <laughs> because sometimes after our night out on the town, he would deposit me back at the hotel. and take off again on his own. Mr. Hughes would simply vanish into the Parisian night, not to reappear until our first lecture, reading, or whatever the following day. <laughs> In Copenhagen, another city he loved, he took advantage of the Scandinavian white nights to stay up all night telling stories over gin and cigarettes the ashes from the cigarettes gently filtering down on his tie, on his vest. He was a brilliant raconteur, and I was his enthralled but sleepy audience. <laughs> Mr. Hughes was a night person. He owned the night. That's when he did most of his writing. That's when he came most vividly alive. Germany was, the next, was next on the itinerary, but I had to say no, exhausted. The pace, the late hours, besides there was the matter of my child and an unfinished book, so I left for home. Happily though, Mr. Hughes and I remained in close touch once he too returned to the States. Indeed, he became my teacher, mentor, disciplinarian, and much needed and treasured elder friend. He would often call me late at night around 11 o'clock or so before he settled down to work supposedly just a chat, but he had really on his mind the whole business of how much work I had gotten done that day. How did it go, Paulie? How many pages did you get done? He was not pleased when all I had to report usually was a short paragraph or two that I had reworked endlessly. He couldn't understand slow, fussy writers like myself. Once he lost patience with me, Paulie, he said, do you realize that I've got a book out for every year that you've been alive? <laughs> I was in my 30s at the time. You'd better get busy. You'd better get busy. Unfortunately, I still haven't caught up with him. In closing, a poem of his speaks to the sense of loss I continue to feel after all these years. It reads, I loved my friend. He went away from me. There's nothing more to say. The poem ends soft as it began. I loved my friend.
have you. Thank you. This is Rock Church. Rock. Elder William Jones was one of them Rock Church preachers who know how to make the spirit rise and the soul get right. And sometimes in the pulpit, he used to start talking real slow, and you think his sermon won't gonna be, be nothing. But by the time he got through, the walls of the temple would be almost rent, the doors busted open, and the benches turned over from pure shouting on the part of the brothers and sisters. Ah, yes. he was a great preacher, was Reverend William Jones. But he weren't satisfied. He wanted to be greater than he was. He wanted to be another Billy Graham, a Helma Gantry, a resurrected Daddy Grace. And that's what brought about his downfall. Ambition. Now, Reverend Jones had been for nearly a year the pastor of one of them little colored churches in the back alleys of St. Louis that are open every night in the week for preaching and singing and praying, you know, where sisters come to shake tambourines and shouting and swing gospel songs and get happy while the reverend presents the word. Now, the rhythm of the music was such that once it got to swinging, you couldn't help but move your arms and your feet or both. And since the reverend always took up collection at the beginning and ending of the sermons, the dancing movement of the crowd at such times was always toward the collection table, <laughs> which was exactly where the elder wanted it to be. Come one, come all, come my lambs, Elder Jones would shout and put it down for Jesus. Oh, yes. Yes, and poor, poor old washer ladies, big fat cooks, long lean truck drivers, and heavy set roustabouts would come up and lay their money down two times every evening for Elder Jones. The minister was getting rich right there in that St. Louis alley. But the piano just a going and the tambourines are flying and people singing and shouting right up on right on up to the altar. Rock church rock. Rock church rock would cry as such a intensely lucrative moments. But, but he was he too ambitious. Was too ambitious. Mm -hmm. He wouldn't let well enough alone. Mm -mm. He wanted to be a big shot. Mm -hmm. He wanted to panic Harlem, gas Detroit, sew up Chicago, then move on out to Hollywood. <laughs> He, he wasn't satisfied with just St. Louis. So he got to thinking. Now, what can I do to get everybody excited? To get everybody talking about my church? To get the streets outside crowded and my name known all over? Even into the far reaches of the nation. Now, what can I do? Now, Billy Sunday had a sawdust trail, so he had her. Reverend Beckton had two valets in the pulpit with him as he cast off garment after garment in the heat of preaching. <laughs> Meanwhile, the angel of Angela's you know, temple had just kept on getting married and divorced and, and making the front pages of everybody's newspapers. I got to be news, too, in my day and time, mused Elder Jones. 
This town is too small for me. I want the world to hear my name. Uh -huh. And now, as I've said before, Elder Jones was a good preacher and a good-looking preacher, too. Mm -hmm. Now, he, he could move the sisters as no other black preacher on this side of town had ever moved them before. And besides, in his youth as a sinner, he had done a little light, you know, hustling around Memphis and, and Vicksburg. <laughs> so he knew just how to appeal to the feminine nature. Yeah, since his recent sojourn in St. Louis, Elder Jones had been looking for a special female lamb to shelter in his private fold. Now, out of all the sisters in the church, he'd finally chosen Sister Maggie Bradford. Not that Sister Maggie was pretty. No, far from it. But Sister Maggie was well-fed, brown-skinned, good-natured, fat, and prosperous. Ah, she owned four two-family houses that she rented out upstairs and down, so she made a good living. Besides, she had sweet and loving ways as well as the interest of her pastor at heart. Elder Jones uh, confided his personal ambitions to said Sister Bradford one morning when he woke up to find her by his side. <laughs> he said, he said, I want to branch out, Maggie. I want to be a really big man. Now, what can I do to get the attention of the world on me? I, I mean, in a religious way. And they thought, and they thought, and they thought. And finally, uh, Sister Maggie said, Bill Jones, you know something I ain't never forgot that I seed as a child. There was a preacher down in Mississippi named Old Man Eubanks, who one time got himself dead and buried, and then rose from the dead. <laughs> now, I ain't never forgot that. And neither has anybody else in that part of the Delta. Now, that's something memorable. I mean, what, what, why don't you do something like that? That, 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 that. How, how did he do it, <laughs> Sister Maggie? Well, he ain't never told nobody how he do it, Brother Bill. Um, he uh, he um, say it was the, by the grace of God, that's all. It might have been. Said Elder Jones. It might have been. Now, mm -hmm. uh, Jones lay there and thought a while longer. By and by, he said, ah, but honey, hmm, I'm going to do something better than that. Do Jesus. Hmm. <laughs> I'm going to be nailed on a cross. Jones, you is a mess. Ah. Now, now, the elder, in order to pull off his intended miracle, had of necessity to take somebody else into his confidence. So he picked out Brother Hicks, his chief deacon, one of the main pillars of the church, 
long before Jones came as pastor. <laughs> it was too bad, though, that Jones never knew that Brother Hicks, uh, better known as Bulldog, used to be in love with Sister Bradford. Now, Sister Bradford neglected to tell the new Reverend about any of her former sweethearts. Uh, so how was Elder Jones to know that some of them still coveted her and were envious of him in their hearts? Hicks, whispered Elder Jones, and telling his chief deacon of his plan to die on the cross and then come back to life. That miracle will make me the greatest minister in the world. No doubt about it. And when I get to be world-renowned bulldog and go traveling about the firmament, I'll take you with me as my chief deacon. You shall be my right hand. And Sister Maggie Bradford shall be my left. Amen. 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 I I hear you said, uh, Brother Hicks. I hope it comes true. But if Elder Jones had looked closely, he would have seen the evil light in his deacon's eyes. Oh, it will come true. If you keep your mouth shut and follow my instructions exactly as I lay them down to you. Now, I trust you. So listen, you know, and I know, that I ain't gonna really die. Neither is I really gonna be nailed. That is why I want you to help me. I want you to have me a great big cross made higher than the altar. So high, I has to have a step ladder to get up to it and be nailed thereon. And you to nail me. The higher, the better so they won't see the straps, cause I'm gonna be tied up by straps, you hear? <laughs> now, the lights will be rose-colored so they can't see the straps. Now, here you come and do the nailing. Now, nobody else but you. Now, you put them nails between my fingers and toes. <laughs> Not through them, between and, and, and don't nail too deep. Leave the heads kind of sticking out. You get the jive? I get the jive, said Brother Bulldog Hicks. Then you and me'll stay right on there in the church all night and all day till the next night when the people come back to see me rise. And ever so often, you can let me down to rest a little bit. But long as I'm on the cross, I play off like I'm dead particularly when the reporters come round. And on Monday night, hallelujah, I will rise and take up collection. Amen, amen, <laughs> said Brother Hooks. Amen. Well, well you couldn't get a near the church on the, on the night that Reverend Jones had had it announced by press, by radio, and by word of mouth that he would be crucified, dead, stay dead, and rise. Negroes came from all over St. Louis, East St. Louis, and mighty not everywhere else to be present at the witnessing of the miracle. Lots of them, see, didn't believe in Reverend Jones, uh, uh, but lots of them did. Uh, and sometimes false prophets can bamboozle you so you can't tell yonder from whither, and that's the way Jones had that crowd. 
The church was packed and jammed, not a seat to be found, and tears were flowing mm. from Sauron's sister's eyes long mm. before the elder even approached the cross, mm. which uh, made out of new lumber right straight from the sawmill, loomed mm. up behind the pulpit. Mm. And in the rose-colored lights mm. with big paper lilies mm. that Sister Bradford had made, mm. decorating his head and foot, the mm. cross looked mighty pretty. Mm. <laughs> elder Jones, preached a mighty sermon that mm, night. Yes. And hot as it was, there was plenty of leaping and jumping and shouting up in that church. Looked like the walls would fall. And then, when he got through preaching, Elder Jones made a solemn announcement as he termed it his last pronouncement. Church, tonight, as I have told the world, I'm gonna die. I'm gonna be nailed to this cross and let the breath pass from me. But tomorrow, Monday night, August the 21st at 12 p.m., I'm coming back to life, amen. After 24 hours on the cross, hallelujah, and all over the city of St. Louis can be saved if they will just come out to see me. Now, before I mount the step to the cross, let's sing for the last time in his hands, because I tell you, that's where I am as we sing let everybody come forward to the collection table <laughs> and help this church before I go. Give largely. Oh, the piano tinkled, the tambourines rang, hands clapped. Elder Jones and his children sang in his hands. And after the song, he said, uh, Let us pray. <laughs> and while every back bowed in prayer, the elder went up the stepladder to the cross. Brother Hicks followed with the hammer and nails. Sister Bradford wailed at the top of her voice. Woe filled the amen corner. Oh, yes. Emotion rocked the church. Folks outside were saying all up and down the street, Lord, I wish we could have got in. Listen, y'all, at that noise. I wonder what's going on. Elder Jones was about to make himself famous. That's what's going on. And all that would have went well had it not been for Brother Hicks. <laughs> A two-faced rascal. Yes. Somehow that night, the devil got into Bulldog and took full possession. The truth of the matter is, Hicks got to thinking about Sister Maggie Bradford and how Reverend Jones had worked up to be her number one man, and that made him mad. The old green snake of jealousy began to coil around his heart. Around his heart. Right there in the meeting. Right there. Right mm -hmm. there on the steps to the cross. On the steps to the cross. Lord have mercy. Lord have mercy. At the very high point of the ceremonies, Hicks had the hammer in one hand. In one hand. And his other hand was full of nails. Full of nails. As he mounted the ladder behind the pastor, he was going up to nail Elder Jones 
on that sawmill cross. <laughs> and he said, and while, while I'm nailing, I might as well nail him right, Hicks thought. A low-down clinker coming here out of Mississippi to take my woman away from me. He'll never know the pleasure of my help in none of his schemes to out-divine Father Divine. No, sir. No, sir. <laughs> And Elder Jones had himself all fixed up with a system of, of, of straps around his waist, round his shoulder blades, and round his wrists and ankles, hidden under his long black coat. And these straps fastened in hooks on the back of the cross out of the sight of the audience so he could just hang up there all sad and sorrowful looking and make out like he was being nailed. And Brother Bulldog Hicks was to plant the nails between his fingers and toes. Hallelujah, rock church, amen, rock, rock, rock church. The excitement was intense. All went well until the nailing began. Mm -hmm. the Elder Jones removes his shoes and socks and, and his bare black feet. Bad farewell to his weeping congregation as he leaned back against the cross and allowed Brother Hicks to compose him there. The crowd began to moan, Lord but Jesus, it was when Hicks placed the first nail between Elder Jones' toes that they became hysterical. Sister Bradford out yelled them all. Oh, Lord have mercy. And Hicks, Hicks placed the, that first nail between the big toe and the next toe of the left foot and began to hammer. The foot was well strapped down so the elder couldn't move it. The closer the head of the nail got to his toe, the louder, harder Hicks struck it. And finally the hammer collided with Elder Jones's foot, bam, against his big toe. Ow! <laughs> he moaned under his breath. Go, go easy, man. Have mercy. Oh, have mercy, have mercy. Oh, have mercy. Have mercy. Shouted the brothers and the sisters of the church. Have mercy on our elder. Have mercy, Lord, have mercy. And once more, the hammer struck his toe. But the all too human sound of his surprise and agonized, ouch, was lost in the tumult of the shouting church. Bulldog, oh, bulldog. Damn, have man, mercy. I say go easy. Oh, have mercy. Go easy, this ain't real. <laughs> brother, Brother Hicks desisted, a grim smile on his face. Yes. And then he turned his attention to the right foot, and there he placed another nail between the toes and began to hammer. Again, as the nail went into the wood, he showed no signs of stopping when the hammer reached the foot. He oh, just no. kept on landing, cruel metallic blows on the elders' bare toenails until the preacher howled with pain. On his bare toes. No longer Effort. able to keep back a sudden hair-raising cry. <laughs> oh, Lord Jesus, that verse is The sweat oh, popped out on his forehead and dripped down on his shirt. <laughs> At first, the elder thought naturally that it was just a slip of the ham on the deacon's part and then he thought the man must have gone crazy like the rest of the audience. And then it hurt him so bad, he didn't know what he thought. So he just hollered. Oh, it was a good thing the 
church was full of noise, or they would have heard a strange dialogue. My God, my God, Hicks, what are you doing? The elder cried, staring wildly at his deacon on the ladder. I'm, I'm nailing you to the cross, Jones, and man, I'm really nailing. Ow! Ow! I'm really nailing you. Ow! Don't you know you're hurting me? Ow! I told you not to nail so hard. But the deacon was unruffled. Who'd you say is gonna be your, your right hand when you get down from here and start your traveling? <laughs> Hicks asked. You, brother, you. The sweating elder cried. cried. And who'd you say was gonna be your left hand? Sister Maggie Bradford moaned Elder Jones from the cross. No, she ain't, said Brother Hicks. <laughs> Whereupon he struck the reverend's toe a really righteous blow. Lord, Lord, help me, cried the torturous minister. The weakened, weeping congregation echoed his cry. It certainly seemed real. The elder was being crucified. Brother Bulldog Hicks took two more steps up the ladder, preparing to nail the hands. With his able, with his evil face right in front of Elder Jones, he hissed, I'll teach you nappy-headed jackleg minister to come to St. Louis and think y'all can walk away with any woman you's a mind to. I'm going to teach you to leave my woman alone. Here, here's a nail. Brother Hicks placed a great big spike right in the palm of Elder Jones' left hand. Oh, and he was just about to drive it in. Drive it in. When the frightened reverend let out a scream that could be heard two blocks away. Yeah! At the same time, he began to struggle to get down. Jones tried to bust the straps, but they was too strong for him. If he could just get one foot loose to kick Brother Bulldog Hicks. Hicks! Hicks lifted the hammer to let go when the Reverend Second yell. This time was loud enough to be heard yeah. in, in East St. Louis. It, it burst like a bomb above the shouts of the crowd, and, 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 and it had its effect. Suddenly, the congregation was quiet. Quiet. Everybody knew that was no way for a dying man to yell. And Sister Bradford realized that something was, had gone wrong. So she began to chant the song her beloved pastor had told her to chant at the propitious moment after the nailing was done. Now, even though the nailing was not done, Sister Bradford thought she had better sing. So she said, Elder Jones will rise again. Elder Jones will rise again. Elder Jones will rise again. Yes, my Lord. He will rise, rise, rise again. But nobody took up the refrain to help her carry it on. No. Everybody was too interested in what was happening in front of them. So Sister Bradford's voice just sort of died out. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, Brother Hicks lifted the hammer again, but Elder Jones spat right in his face. Spat in his face. He not only spat, <laughs> but suddenly he called his deacon a name unworthy of man or beast. He called him a bad name, bad name. Then he let out another frightful yell and in mortal anguish called, Sister Maggie Bradford, let me down from here. I say, come. Get me down from here. And, and those in the church, those in the church that had not already stopped moaning and shouting did so at once. I mean, you could have heard a pin drop. I mean, folks were petrified. Brother Hicks stood on the ladder, glaring with satisfaction at Reverend Jones, mm -hmm. his hammer still raised. Under his breath, the panting elder 
dared him to nail another nail. We dared him. And threatened to kill him stone dead with stone a dead. 44 if he did. <laughs> just, just let me, let me get loose from here and I'll fight you like a natural man. <laughs> Twisted and turning like a tree in the storm. <laughs> come down then, yell Hicks, right out loud from the ladder. Come on down, come on down. As sure as water runs, Joan, I'll show you up for what you is. A woman chaser, no good, low down faker. I'll beat you to a battle with my bare hands. Lord have mercy. Lord have mercy. Cried the yes, church. Oh, Jones Ooh. almost broke a blood vessel trying to get loose from the cross. <laughs> Sister Maggie, Sister Maggie, come and let me down, he pleaded, sweat streaming from his face. But Sister Bradford was covered with confusion. In fact, she was petrified. What could have gone wrong for the elder to call on her like that in public, in the very midst of the thing that was to bring him famous glory and make them all rich, preaching throughout the land without with, with her at his side. Sister Bradford's head was in a whirl and her heart was in her mouth. Oh, Elder Jones, you mean, you, you really want to get down? Yes, cried the elder. Can't you hear? I done called you 20 times to let me down. At this point, Brother Hicks Gave the foot nails one more good hammer. Yeah. <laughs> and the, yeah. Words that, the words that came from that cross were not to be found in the Bible. <laughs> in a twinkling, Sister Bradford was at Jones' side, yes, realizing at last that the devil must have got into Hicks like it used to sometimes in the days when she knowed him. She went to the aid of her battered elder, grabbed the foot of the ladder, and sent Hicks sprawling across the pool. You'll never crucify my elder, she cried, not for real. And energetically, she began to cut the straps away that bound the river. And soon, poor Jones slid to the floor, his, his feet too sore from the hammer's blow to even stand on him without help. Just, <laughs> let, just let me get at Hicks, was all the Reverend Jones said. Just let me get at Hicks. <laughs> no, he no. knew it. I didn't want them nails that close. That's no. In the dead silence that took possession <laughs> of the church, everybody heard him moan. Lord, Lord, just let me get at Hicks as he hobbled away on the protecting arm of Sister Maggie. Stand back, Bulldog, Sister Maggie said to the deacon, and let your pastor pass. Soon as he's able, he's going to flatten you out like a shatter. But now I'm in charge, so stand back, I say, and let him pass. Let him pass. Hicks, let him pass. Hicks stood back. And the crowd murmured. The minister. You know, made his exit. Oh, what did I never saw such a thing. And thus ended the ambitious career of, of, of Elder William Jones. Ah, uh, he never did pass in St. Louis anymore. Never again. And, and neither did he fight Hicks. He, he just snuck away. He just snuck away. For parts. For parts. Unknown. 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 <laughs> Thank you.
Margot Jefferson and there. Langston Hughes was a performer and so he made being Langston Hughes look triumphantly easy. So right now what was difficult about being Langston Hughes is what interests me. He was the child who kept being lost and found by his vain, perpetually discontented mother, and the boy who was psychically manhandled by an angry, selfish father, when the father had time to be involved at all. Langston Hughes was easy to love as a poet and a man. And he must have enjoyed being easy to love. People always do. Uh, he did not enjoy the intrusiveness of intimacy. And at some point, intimacy always becomes very intrusive. I think it is very complicated to be the voice, even the many voices of a people, your people. We know what boundaries the white world placed on Langston Hughes, but our love and judgments made other kinds of demands and imposed other boundaries on him. Um, our intimacy with him must have been intrusive sometimes too. He was very restless, I think, and independent, uh, something of a chameleon, full of mixed moods. Maybe that's one reason, a temperamental reason, he was so drawn to the blues. They're the least self-conscious poems about consciousness. All those warring states of mind and changes of heart, they're narrative and lyric at the same time. And it must have been why he was drawn to Walt Whitman and Carl Sandburg, because in their work, as in Hughes's, the private merges into the public and the public voice becomes achingly confessional or joyously confessional and unstoppably rhythmic. And if you think of those jazz poems, montage of a dream deferred, yard bird, help me, that's, that's the voice you hear. Langston Hughes came to speak at my college once and our black student organization had invited him to go out with us afterwards. We gathered around him very possessively, uh, but there was one white student there too. And she seemed not to know about our plans, and she wanted to talk to Langston Hughes briefly. And since it was 1966, or maybe 67, we wanted him to snub her mercilessly. But um, he talked very amiably with her for just a few minutes. We indicated it was time to get started, to go, to go away. Uh, he started to ask her if she wanted to join us, and we managed to convey without being brutally frank um, that, you know, no, he was with us, and she was to go her own way. So he said goodbye to her pleasantly, and he went off with us. So he had assuaged everyone, and maybe he had assuaged no one. 
Uh, I definitely remember feeling very snippy and undergraduate irritated by it all. And I thought, oh, God, he's just, he's just too old. Uh, he really doesn't get it. Um, I do not know what he thought. Um, he'd probably been through something like this many times, and maybe none of us. No one in that little scene um, pleased him either. So bearing all of these Langstons in mind, um, I'm going to read. I would have said I want to read, but having heard Avery Brooks and, um, and Ruby Dionasi Davis, I can't say I want to, but it was in my plan. So I am going to read. <laughs> I am going to read this poem. <laughs> so it's called Final Call, and I want you to remember that all the lines are in capital letters. And the very last line is in tiny, tiny, sub the usual script, tiny print. All right, final call. Send for the Pied Piper and let him pipe the rats away. Send for Robin Hood to clinch the anti-poverty campaign. Send for the fairy queen with a wave of the wand to make us all into princes and princesses. Send for King Arthur to bring the Holy Grail. Send for old man Moses to lay down the law. Send for Jesus to pre preach the Sermon on the Mount. Send for Dreyfus to cry, J'accuse. Send for Blind Lemon Jefferson to sing the B-flat blues. Send for Robespierre to scream, ça ira, ça ira, ça ira. Send God forbid he's not dead long enough for Lumumba to cry freedom now. Send for Lafayette and tell him, help, help me. Send for Denmark Vesey crying free. For Cinque saying, run a new flag up the mast. For old John Brown who knew slavery couldn't last. Send for Lenin. Don't you dare, he can't come here. Send for Trotsky. What? Don't confuse the issue, please. Send for Uncle Tom on his mighty knees. Send for Lincoln. Send for Grant. Send for Frederick Douglass, Garrison, Beecher, Lowell. Send for Harriet Tubman, old sojourner truth. Send for Marcus Garvey. What? Sufi. Who? Father Divine. Where? Du Bois. When? Malcolm. Oh. Send for Stokely. No? Then send for Adam Powell on a non-subpoenaed day. <laughs> send for the Pied Piper to pipe our rats away. And if nobody comes, send for me.
Ruben Rogers at the base. Ruben Rogers. Joshua Redman, thank you. you, but I've been to most of the Langston Hughes celebrations in this country this year, and this has to be one of the most wonderful. <clears throat> and that, that last melody, a lot of you know uh, the name, Do Nothing Till You Hear From Me by, uh, by Duke Ellington. And, you know, before Langston died, long before he died, he prepared the order of his funeral service. No minister, uh, no prayers, not even an MC. You just get, get there, the folks invited got there, and a jazz band, Randy Weston's trio, played. And all he was asked, the only thing that he absolutely requested, the last tune, they could play anything they wanted, but the last tune was to be do nothing till you hear from me. <laughs> In July of 1960, the NAACP gave Langston Hughes its highest honor, the Spingarn Medal. Hughes was very deeply moved, but he gave credit where he believed credit was due. It would have been, he said, of the utmost conceit for him to accept the medal in his name alone. I can accept it only, he insisted, in the name of the Negro people who have given me the materials out of which my poems and stories, plays and songs have come, and who, over the years, have given me as well their love and understanding and support. Without them on my part, there would have been no poems. Without their hopes and fears and dreams, no stories. Without their struggles, no dramas. Without their music, no songs. Had I not heard as a child in the little churches of Kansas and Missouri, Deep River, my home is over Jordan, or my Lord, what a morning when the stars began to fall. I might not have come to realize the lyric beauty of living poetry. Let me end with a small poem of Langston Hughes that tells of his broadest vision. It's the text of an aria written for one of his operas, but it says clearly, I think, what he hoped for all of us, for America, for the world. I dream a world where man, no other man, will scorn, where love will bless the earth and peace its path adorn. I dream a world where all will know sweet freedom's way, where greed no longer saps the soul, nor avarice blights our day. A world I dream where black or white, whatever race you be, will share the bounties of the earth and every man is free where wretchedness will hang its head, and joy, like a pearl, attends the needs of all mankind. Of such I dream our world. 
Thank you.